The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Copy of God's Word to Exodus 25 this morning. Exodus 25 will be in three chapters, 25, 26, and 27, as we again take a larger portion of Scripture in this series uh, called God of Glory as we've been going through the book of Exodus. Last week, we had several chapters as well, looking at the laws of uh, the Mosaic Covenant, and now uh, the instructions of the tabernacle, the meeting place of God in these uh, in, 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 in these verses here for us. And so as you're turning there in your Bible, let me ask this question. Have you ever received a gift that uh, on the box or the packaging in some place said, some assembly required? Yeah? You received some like that, and then, and then you opened it up, and it came with an instruction manual that was like long and confusing, and these written out instructions that were a translation of a likely a different language, and you just... It was more confusing than maybe even helpful. There, weren't, there were written out in detailed paragraphs and verses like a step-by-step uh, action with uh, diagrams to help. Right? Many parents in here, like you, you probably have stories of Christmas Eve and out there in the cold and the dark trying to assemble and fit pipes and put things together uh, for the joy of Christmas morning. Anybody been there? Any dads try to? Yeah, and it's... You want to pull your hair out uh, in uh, trying to put this together. Now, Ikea and Lego Company, now they have it figured out, don't they? Their instructions are brilliant. You know, like uh, here's a cabin that's built many years ago in Lego. They're so helpful for very simple-minded guys like me to just like step-by-step, a few pieces at a time, and you just begin to uh, put it all together. And after a bit, then voila, there's a a house or some other Lego thing. Imagine if it wasn't diagrams and step-by-step and it was all written out. In detailed paragraph, it was like, okay, now put a one-by-four angled, half-angled piece on top of another one, on top of another one, and then attach the white horn-looking things to the side and count three blocks. It'd be a nightmare, right? It would come out looking maybe not quite as nice and neat like this. But in many ways, what we have this morning are instructions for the construction of a tent, Uh, Not just any old tent, but an ornate tent, a tabernacle, the tent among many tents in a sea of people, the tent of the Lord, the portable meeting place for God and his people as this new nation forms. As the people of God are, 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 are at the base of Mount Sinai, now God gives instructions for his people to come and meet with him even as they are on the move. And church, this is a profound truth about God, his nearness to humanity, that the creator of the universe would come and make himself known. He would draw near to his creation that the infinite God, would come near to finite humanity, that he who dwells everywhere all the time would reveal himself in one location. The God who is holy and set apart comes down and comes close then to his children. These truths are what are illustrated in their chapters on the tabernacle as we look at it together. And so how could we sum up Exodus 25 through 27? Well, we could sum it up like this. It's on the screen here that the God of glory sets us free and comes to dwell among us. The God of glory sets us free and comes to dwell among us. 
Now to recap the book of Exodus here, if you're unfamiliar with it or you've maybe just forgotten that Exodus begins and, and uh, Israel is enslaved, aren't they? Enslaved in Egypt uh, under brutal terms there and God in ways that only he can do delivered them through his judgments, through the Passover lamb, through the Red Sea and now into the wilderness and has brought them as this nation on the move to the base of Mount Sinai. And so they are, they're a new nation. They have new laws. God is organizing them and it's how they would live and how they would relate to one another, setting the moral foundation for their life as a people. But also in the midst of the instructions like we see today, this is a new era for their worship. God is preparing his people to worship him, to walk with him and to uh, work for him. And so he has these uh, moral instructions. He has the Ten Commandments. He's built on that foundation with more laws. And so today is, comes God's instructions for how he will be worshipped. And specifically, he's laying out the terms for how he will draw near to them and dwell in their midst. Now, church, when, when God is manifestly present, when he is, uh, that is, when he is uh, at work, when he is transforming uh, people, when he is uh, enlarging our understanding of who he is and growing our affections and moving us to uh, greater uh, obedience to him, when he is moving and present, what is our right response? It's worship. It's worship said simply, when God works, we worship. When God works, we, we worship, we, 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 we come to him in humble submission and obedience. And when I say worship, I don't simply just mean singing. What we were just doing here for, uh, you know, for 30 or 40 minutes, when I say worship, I mean this. Here's a definition that we use around here at our church, that worship is offering all that we are and all that we have in right response to who God is. That is, as we grow in our understanding of the truth, when we grow in our understanding of the character of God and the work of God, the activity of God, we then respond, we react with worship. It involves many things, yes, singing, but it involves our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength as we come before the Lord. And so worship isn't just merely an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday morning, but it is a lifestyle of God's people ascribing to him the glory due his come to worship him and come into his presence as God has made himself known then he gives us instructions for how to do that so let's look closer at the text now what does he tell the Israelites to do first if he's coming to dwell what instructions does he give first well chapter 25 verses 1 to 8 tell us this we're to serve God with your whole heart Serve God with your whole heart. Let's read it, shall we? Look at your Bible and let's uh, look closely at this uh, first section here. Exodus 25, beginning in verse 1, says this, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting for the ephod and the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Now this is God's word for God's people. And so the beginnings of the instructions on the tabernacle uh, start with God saying, hey, we're all in this 
together. We all have a part in the construction of this place where I will dwell. And so when the Lord is speaking these words that we just read here, remember Moses is on Mount Sinai. He's went up to the top. If you remember from chapter 24 at the end there, Moses has gone up. Joshua, his assistant, is with him and he's in the clouds there. And it appears like fire and there's some lightning and storms and he's there for 40 days and 40 Nights. Now, as I was up early this morning and uh, was going through my notes and meeting with the Lord is when the storm was rolling in. If you were up early like me, you maybe uh, saw a little bit of it as well as thunder and lightning and all the things. And it just reminded me of this text here. It's like, God, you are present. You are here. And I thank you that I am inside. <laughs> not exposed on the mountain in the midst of a storm. And so there it's where Moses is. He's hearing this from the Lord. And what we have recorded for us in chapters 25 through 31 is what the Lord told to Moses. And when it comes to building then the tabernacle, the first thing Moses is told to go to is, hey, gather contributions to collect from the people the best of their time, talent, and treasure so that God's dwelling would stand out from the rest. See, they're, they're in the midst now. They're coming. What would you do if you were uh, exiled, if you were on the move and you were with your family or even on your own? You would begin to think about, well, where are we going to sleep? What are we going to eat? What are we going to do as a family? And God's saying, hey, 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 hold on. As you are beginning to uh, you know, make your own life together, let us also not forget the Lord. See, church, as it comes to the Lord, what does he get? Does he get the rest of what we have? No, God gets the best. Our best belongs to the Lord, not our leftovers, not our spare change, but our best belongs to God. And so as we read the text here, he's, the contributions that he would collect include their treasure, their talent, and their time. The treasure is pretty obvious, right? Their metals, their gems, their resources, and you know, verse 3, gold, silver, bronze, of course. Um, what they had here, the stones that would be used for the priestly garments, more on that next week in verse 7. But the resources here of skins and wood and all the things, the spices that they would have harvested, that they would have worked for. See, not only was God collecting from them the treasure that they had, but also their talents. This is what's in the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, the fine twined linens. These were skills, trades that they would have learned in Egypt. Maybe used as uh, slaves to outfit the royal palaces and the places of Egypt now being used for the Lord. And so God's saying, hey, collect these for the building up. And as you will read in the coming chapters, each of these will be used for various parts of the construction of the tabernacle uh, structure. And so they're to give their treasure, they're to give their talent, but also their time. Look at in verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And so we serve God with our whole heart. But church, here's, here's a takeaway from this. Here's a takeaway. We take care of God's house and he takes care of our house. Take care of God's house and he takes care of our house. And the Lord knows this. This is why he begins here that there's a battle that takes place in our heart sometimes, isn't there? This battle that takes place and when it comes to our, our, our finances, we're, we're thinking internally. Maybe not all of us will say this sometimes, maybe, but we're, we're thinking it. There's a battle where like money's tied. I don't know if I, I, don't know if I have anything to contribute. I, 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 don't, I don't have anything left to give. When it comes to serving, like the Lord knows, he's like, well, in our mind, the battle that goes on, I'm with my kids all throughout the week. Somebody else can watch them on a Sunday morning. Uh, yeah, we, we think this, this battle goes on. I've done my time serving. I've been in the church for decades. Let's leave the serving, the contributing, our talents. Let's leave that to somebody else. 
we think, we have this battle, we look at our schedule, we have all these things going on, we just, ah, I'm too busy to help right now. But church, this is, this is leftover thinking. This isn't worshipful thinking. The Lord receives our best, not simply the rest. He gets our best and, and, and we get the joy. He, isn't this what we want to put our, our time, talent, and treasure into where God is at work? Where he, is, uh, where he is present, where he is, where he is moving, this is what we want to do. This is what we want to contribute in, giving our best worship, our best service to the glory of God. That we who have been set free, that we who know the peace that God gives, we who know the hope of the gospel now have a contributing role in getting that message out. Not that we save people, but we're the ambassadors, we're the workers, we are the laborers in the harvest that God uses so that others would be set free in Jesus Christ. Isn't this awesome, y'all? Isn't this awesome when we have this uh, worshipful thinking before us? Church, God has called redemption home. He's built this church. It's his uh, body. He has gathered his people. He has gathered you here with the time and the talent and the treasures that he's given you. And every time we gather, he shows up in our midst, moving and transforming. And we get to listen and hear and contribute and be a part of that happening over and over and over and over again. See, week after week, I have the privilege, just as a pastor, I get to hear the testimonies, the simple testimonies and the profound testimonies, how God is at work in you. How God is moving, how he's growing your understanding, how he is growing your affections for him, how he is, is growing your, your hatred, your revulsion of sin, who's growing you in joyful obedience and giving you the endurance that you need through suffering. We hear these in our small groups. We hear this all the time. And so just ask someone after service. You're like, man, I'm, I'm new here. Or I've not heard these things. Just ask someone after the service. Just put somebody on the spot. Say, hey, how's God working in your life right now? Now you have about you know, 30 more minutes to think of your answer when somebody will tell you. But church, God has called redemption home, and those of us who've called redemption home, we have this great opportunity, this great privilege then to bring our best, to serve the Lord with our whole heart, week after week, contributing a portion of our treasure, a margin of our talent and time uh, for the Lord while we serve on ministry teams, both on Sunday and throughout the week. And so here's, here's just a call. If you aren't serving, if you don't, and, and, and your heart is moving your feet now to do something, then right after the service, Erin, our church admin, she'll be out at the connection desk, and she would love to get you connected with one of our ministry teams in a way that you can bring your time, your talent, your treasure to the Lord in joyful contribution to the place where God is dwelling here at redemption. Isn't that a great joy, God, that, guys, that God would give us? And some opportunity that he would call us into this work and then call us to do the work, which is a phrase really that's repeated over and over and over through the next several chapters. And we're not going to look at all the, uh, 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 the, the details of these next passages, but I just want you to see here that as, as he ends in verse 8, then let them make me a sanctuary, he says that again over and over. Then you shall make me or they shall make me a thing. So look at your Bibles and get ready to flip because I want you to just see like, Paragraph after paragraph, God is calling us to serve the Lord. Exodus 25, verse 10. Look here. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. 
Two cubits and a half shall be its length. Okay, cubits approximately 18 inches. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Down in verse 23, then you shall make a table of acacia wood. Verse 31, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. <clears throat> Chapter 26, moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of fine twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. Verse 7 of chapter 26, you shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Verse 11, you shall make 50 clasps of bronze. Verse 15, you shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Verse 26, you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames on the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames on the other side of the tabernacle. Verse 31, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Verse 36, you shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent. Verse, or chapter 27, verse 1, you shall make the altar of acacia wood. Verse 9, you shall make the cord of the tabernacle. You get the point? There's some work to be done, right? Service to be had, all for the glory of God here. And so what are we to make of all these instructions? We're going to look a little bit closer, but what are we to make of all this? Well, here's really the second point. We're to see God in the details. In the details of the work that he's calling us to do, this isn't just busy work that God is, is calling them to. Everything has its purpose. And so flip back to chapter 25 now. I know we're doing some like exercises, some back and forth. It's like push-ups, sit-ups, push-ups, sit-ups. But come back to verse 9 of chapter 25. God is saying, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And so why would God be so concerned about the details well, he's concerned about all things in our life. And so, of course, he's concerned about the symbolism, the details of how he would come and be worshipped. God sets the terms. We talk about that often. He sets the terms. And so, in all the parts and pieces and measurements and counting, we are to see the Lord's purpose and to whom he is pointing to. And so he gives, the, uh, he gives a, a pattern here. He gives the, uh, the uh, blueprint. And, uh, you know, instead of reading through all these here, because it might just, like, blow our minds and more steam would be coming out our ears, just have some pictures, some renderings here on the screen. And so put that up there, the first one. Here's just kind of an overlay here of what the tabernacle looked like. So you have the outer courts there, that inner rectangle there the, was where the Ark of the Covenant uh, would be in the middle with the, uh, with the lampstand and things we're going to look at all this in a minute and the altar on the outside and uh, just kidding but you can begin to see the uh, the rendering of what uh, what the tabernacle would look like with the curtains and the bases and everything around the exterior and then the inner uh, uh, portion of the tabernacle the altar there with the uh, smoke and the fire there and so this is you know it, it as we look through the details, what it would look like, kind of. So let's just leave that up there. Don't take that off the screen. Let's leave that there as we look a little bit closer here um, because the, the, the passage here, the, the chapters, they have some considerable detail. But one thing is to note that the, even though the details are uh, a, a lot, the focus on the text is less of a blueprint and more on the purpose in the design and the one to whom this is all pointing to. 
And so as, as we work our way through, we're not going to count all these things out. We'll just make some observations. You can read it this afternoon. You can study this in greater detail this afternoon. But I want to talk just briefly about the purpose and the one who it points to, as I said. So it starts in the middle here. It's the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you've uh, probably heard of this. If you're an Indiana Jones fan, then uh, for sure you've heard of this as they are searching everywhere for it. And who knows where it is? Maybe it's in somebody's basement now. We don't know. I think God has uh, just done away with it so we wouldn't be so consumed by it. But what was it? The Ark of the Covenant was an ornate box with these angel-like figures upon the top. Uh, really, they, what the purpose was to hold the testimony inside, the words of God in its interior. It was the very symbol of God's presence amongst the people. And so all these other layers of protection around it, but because this was the, very, uh, the symbol of God's very presence that contained his words. Now, there's lots of imagery and different things with the Ark of the Covenant. That is in itself an awesome study. But for the sake of our point this morning and where we're thinking here, the Ark of the Covenant is to be viewed much like we view our Bible, containing the words of God, a symbol of God's presence, where we hear from Him, where we meet with Him as we read His Word. And so as they would come here, the key then to the Ark of the Covenant is in verse 22, where he says, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, that are the, that's the angel-like figures that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you, but all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And so here's where they would come to. And just outside then, outside the Ark of the Covenant, then is the next section here in verse 23, this table. We would come and, and meet with him, regularly communing with him as our provider, the bread of the presence on the table, coming to meet with the Lord. And the lampstand in verse 31, right outside, this ornate flowery menorah. A candelabra, a symbol of God's presence that is lighting the way for his people as they would come to meet with him. And so here's the inner portion. But then in chapter 26, it comes out to the greater tabernacle structure with all its frames and curtains and hoops and loops and everything. It's lots of description here. Actually, as you read it, it takes us back, uh, for those of you that have been at Redemption for a long time in our early portable days, it reminds us of that early facilities team, doesn't it? With the bases and its upright pipes and the, and the uh, you know the the drapes that would be hung across and man in, in those days a uh, team were so awesome. If we were maybe more you know biblically astute in those days, we should have called it the Tabernacle Team. I think instead of the facilities because we'd come before it and steer for us. But some of the guys that were on that team might have uh, you know some flashbacks or something. And like no, this isn't good. It's right. I mean we have some right there. So. And it includes these bases. We'd set them out, and we count the squares, and we put another one in the pipes, and okay, this has three different drapes that will go, and why? why? What's all this description? Why the curtains? Why do they need to be a whole sheet? Well, it's symbolic of the unity found in the Lord, that there would be no division, and the veil in verse 31 that would separate the most holy place from the rest where the ark, the very presence of God was uh, inside. And so these curtains, they separated it. They separated these areas from the outside world as a reminder that the God is set apart from humanity. There's not just traipsing into it. There's different ways we come in and different uh, uh, degrees here as we come into the very presence of God. And so the curtains are all surrounded here. But in the outer area then, in chapter 27, is the bronze altar. 
This altar that was made, uh, and again, a very ornate, laden gold, an altar different from the previous era. And we'll talk about this more in a, in a minute here. But it had a very purposeful design. It was square, and then the corners had these uh, uh, curved up horns. And it was purposeful to collect the ash and such as these offerings were made here in the courtyard. See, they, they couldn't just come into God's presence without a payment for their sin, without a sacrifice. See, there's consequences for our sin, isn't there? consequences in our home. If our kids sin then they, and they disobey the rules, there's consequences. If we uh, disobey or we don't follow the rules at work, there are consequences at work. If we uh, disobey and don't follow the traffic or the authority, uh, the greater the consequence and sins against the Lord demand death. And so as God's people would draw near, they, they, if you didn't want to die, then an animal had to die as your substitute had to die in your place. And so this bronze altar was there. The description here is it would point to one who would die in our place. This courtyard here, the outer area of preparation that is described here, it's kind of like the, you know, the welcome area out there. Once the as time will go on to be called the court of the Gentiles, and maybe that's what we need to name that uh, welcome area out there. Just put a sign over it, the court of the Gentiles, and no, no, shouldn't do that. But see, there's walls built around it as well, only half the height to set, keep it still set apart from the outside, but not to obscure the inner uh, court, the inner tabernacle there. And then the people in verse 20 of chapter 27 were also to bring in this oil for the lamp. They were to contribute this, uh, uh, this olive oil so that the lamps would stay lit all the time, a symbol of God's omnipresence always lighting the way. And so, like I said, we saw it last week. We know this is true. God cares about the details of our life. He cares also about the details of how he is worshipped because each detail here is not just for busy work or meticulous uh, uh, busy bodying, but it is to point to something in his character and his work. It points to the truth about himself so that the people of God in that day would respond in worship. And this has always been true. As God, is, as he lays out the terms, as he calls us to worship him, he does so with putting before us with symbols and things that would point to him. In the Garden of Eden, there was some foreshadowing there. As God would work, uh, walk with his people and he would, we would see him and Adam and Eve would see him in the elements of the garden. And even the tabernacle here is pointing back in the flowery arrangements, is pointing back to God walking with his people in the garden. And all of these things then are fulfilled in as they would meet with God, but what about us? Is this a tabernacle? Should we build an altar out there in the front and start bringing animals to worship on Sundays? Was that dog that was out there? Is that a... That's a neighbor dog, by the way. No, we're not in an era of a tabernacle. You see, here's the third and final point as we come to the text, and we'll see some things. We have some other notes, but we're to meet with God through Jesus. We're to meet with God through Jesus. See, there are some fundamental truths about God dwelling and relating and rescuing his people that never change. 
as he makes himself known to uh, humanity in an era, as, a, as he exposes sin, as he lays out his rescue plan, and as he, as he gives a hope for a future of walking with him and living with him forever, there are some things like that have never changed, though the terms maybe have changed about how God is manifestly present and what he is doing throughout uh, history in, in, in that people group. And so this, there's a theology, a biblical theology of God's presence. And so I just want to kind of zoom out from here so we can see how does this all fit? Like what, what's, what, is, what is this all about? And then after this, we'll zoom in uh, a, a little bit more and we're going to see Christ in it. But you want to zoom out for a second? Here's a biblical theology of God's presence as you look at the scope of the Bible. It's on the, uh, on the screen here for you. You can write it down or take some notes here. But the first few chapters, God is, he makes himself known in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve are innocent and there are terms for walking with him and rules of things to avoid and not to do. And it's, it sounds pretty great. It's like paradise, actually, right? You open the Bible, and the first few chapters are fantastic. And you get to chapter 3. <sighs> yeah. And things aren't going so great. And because sin enters the world, now sacrifices for sin are necessary. And so you have this whole uh, uh, relating with God and God being present on altars as he would make himself known in those names of God that you see in the book of Genesis uh, as we get to Exodus 20, in these chapters here, now there's a whole new era as God's people are on the move as they are a portable nation and God would come and dwell and be among them through the tabernacle and what we are reading about here and it would carry on for generations uh, all the way up until King David and they would come and settle the land then and they would have this you know, portable set up until they become more permanent and established and wars cease and then who come, who's the king after King David? Solomon, whose name means peace, and God commissions him to build this temple, a fixed, permanent structure, much like the tabernacle with very similar elements, but in a permanent construction. And this continues on. It's destroyed once, and then Herod builds a second temple all the way through, even the time of Jesus, as God in this permanent central location would come and make himself known, and people would meet with him there, making atonement for their sin until Christ comes. We find ourselves in the same place now in the church. All these things are fulfilled and wrapped up in Jesus. And we're going to come back to that. But it's not even this isn't the end as we long for, as we hope for Christ's return, his millennial rule and reign as our king in the millennium. And then those last two chapters of Revelation as we look forward to the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem that God will set up. And so why, why do we overview all this stuff, church? Why, why, why add this? Why? It's because I want to help you just see God's purposes. I want you to see in the tabernacle details where this all fits in human history, but also to help us then zoom in and see Christ in the details, to add depth to uh, our reading of the New Testament, of, of the Gospels and our teachings about Christ and Jesus' own words about himself as recorded in John. As we think about the tabernacle and the elements that we just overviewed in the second point here, as you read then, John, you will see how these things are pointing to Christ. You'll see how it points to Christ through all the details here that he comes and meets with us. So consider these verses here. They'll be on the screen. See, Jesus is the word of God. John 1.1, it begins with saying, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, we have in the Ark of the Covenant a, a symbol 
uh, a holding place for the physical word of God, but Christ is no mere symbol, but the very presence of God who dwelt with his people then and there, and now the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ is in us, his people. See, Jesus is the one who we are looking to. Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. Jesus is the word of God. He is also the bread. In the same way as they had the table and the things for the bread of the presence, Jesus said in John 6, 35, he said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, in Christ, he's not just a mere symbol of the presence of God, but God himself fellowshipping with his people and now by his spirit, and we are invited to come to him. Some of you in here this morning are hungry, and not for lunch in a few minutes. You're hungry for purpose. You're hungry for something that means something. You're, you are thirsty because you are empty of soul. And Christ today is inviting you to come to him, to eat of him, spiritually speaking, to repent of your sin, to repent of trying to eat and figure out and sustain yourself by your own actions. He's calling you to come to him, to be truly satisfied to be satisfied of soul and to live the abundant life, to live in newness of life with the hope for eternity. If that is, that is you this morning, take and eat, see that all of this is pointing to Christ. Christ is the word of God. He is the bread. He is also the lampstand. John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. As the lamp would light the way, as it would point the way. See, Jesus, doesn't he make everything in life so much clearer? The enemy, our sin, wants to distort things, wants to obscure the truth, wants to cloud the way of righteousness. But all of the confusion of life, all the chaos and things of life, Jesus seems to make it all clearer when we see it through him. Jesus is also in the tabernacle. He's in the tabernacle. John, going back to John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacled, among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, God came near, church. The Son of Man, the Son of God, humbled himself, was born as a baby, lived the life that we could not live. And then he died the death that we were supposed to live. See, Jesus is also the Lamb of God. Going on in John 1, 29, the next day he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, as they would come into that tabernacle and lay their lamb, lay their sacrifice upon the altar, Christ willingly who for the joy set before him came and laid down his life as our substitute. He was the once for all sacrifice for sins. Jesus is the entryway. Jesus is the way we come in. He's the Lamb of God. He also is the door. John 10, 7, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. See, that courtyard was the entry point into God's presence. It was the gateway in. It was the door. And now, church, Jesus is the door. 
He is the entry point into the grace in which we now stand. He is our access into the throne, the grace, uh, into the grace of God. He is the one welcoming us into this life of worship. Church, Jesus is the door, and he is also the way, the truth, and the life that many of us know, uh, we've probably memorized through uh, in our childhood, or maybe you just are memorizing it now, but Jesus said to him, that is Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As that oil in the lamp would continually illuminate the way to the presence, Jesus illuminates our way. He illuminates the truth. He is our life. And note this, these are words of comfort to troubled disciples. John 14 is for, for the troubled disciples at Jesus' departure, and he reminds us of this truth. Redemption, are you in awe of Christ this morning? See, we can get clouded up in the details and looking at the structure and be enamored by the building and all the, all the parts and pieces, and yet these things here are pointing us to someone greater. The tabernacle here, the, the worship of, of God here is not about the sticks and stones, the linens and the gold. It's not about any of that. It is about Christ. Are you amazed by the wisdom and majesty of God this morning, both in his cosmic plan to set us free and also in the intricate details to dwell with us, the lengths in which God would go to make himself known. And as we think of all this, what could our appropriate reaction be but worship? to ascribe to him the glory due to him. And for some this morning, that might just be repenting and believing for the very first time. For others, it might be being renewed in your response of worship today. You feel your heart cold and distanced from the Lord, and you know it is not God who has moved. It's our sin that has separated us. And for still others, these chapters, these thoughts may just be logs on an already blazing inferno of faith. But wherever you are this morning, we come to God through Jesus Christ. So let's do that now as we pray, and then we'll sing again. God in heaven, here we, here we are. We're your people. Even, the, even to voice these prayers, even to come to you in our, in, our, in our thoughts and our attitudes now is to do so only because of Jesus Christ. We, we come and humbly mindful of the mercy that was shown us our minds fixed on you Jesus and so oh God there, there's just lots of details there's lots of things here there's lots of distractions we're hot we're sweaty and yet would you God by your spirit cause none of that to obscure our vision of you, Jesus, our understanding of who you are, would you not let it dampen our response as we sing to you, as we live for you this week in, in grateful uh, obedience. So Christ, you are the Lamb of God, you are all these things, and you are also the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the one to whom we look. You are the one to whom we worship. So would you receive our praise now as we sing to you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.